This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome, everyone, to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and with me as ever is my co-host, Tony Black. Hi, Tony. Hello, Duncan. How are you? I'm not bad. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm recovering from a very uh, exciting break where it was all full of drama, all marriages and trips away. And Sounds like you're recovering from a bout of shore leave, um, <laughs> as, as Scotty says. <laughs> I can com- I can confirm there was possibly whiskey involved. Was so, there? Yeah. I bet. I, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> Better say no more. So this episode, basically, we're going to be doing something slightly different from the last two. Basically, the, the remit of this show is to look at our culture in, in quite a, a broad sense. So the first episode, we looked at a sort of historical topic with Oppenheimer and the atom bomb. Second episode, uh, we looked at a movie, The Manchurian Candidate. This episode is going to be the first of what we think will probably be a series of episodes looking at literary influences on Star Trek. And we've chosen to focus specifically on one film, The Wrath of Khan, because I think that's the... Um, Partly because we're looking not so much at just at literature, but also at the kind of physical presence of books. And this is the, the film that really kind of brings books in a, in a big way into the Star Trek universe, I think. But before we do that, listeners who tuned into our last episode will know that I went into a little bit about how I got into Star Trek then. So this episode, we're going to hear a bit from Tony about his Star Trek journey and uh, what brought him into the Star Trek universe and, and what's brought him up to this point. So... Tony, take it away. Let us know, how did you get hooked on Star Trek? Well, I wish I could say that there was some sort of, you know, familial connection to it, whether it was a family member who loved it or, you know, something specifically that triggered me off. But I genuinely don't remember that happening, actually. I more remember that I ended up watching Star Trek when I was maybe about six years old. And whether it was on TV at the time, and this would be around the late 80s, showing my age there. Back then, they used to play uh, more. It was the uh, the movies. And that that was my route. It was... I remember vividly the first TV episode of Star Trek I watched. It wasn't the, the old 60s series. I didn't grow up on that, on that, actually. I only watched the 60s episodes much, much later when I was older, actually. But my first experience, my first... TV experience of Star Trek was Realm of Fear, which was the, I think, season six Next Generation episode where Reg Barkley becomes afraid of the transporter, which isn't necessarily a, you know, an amazing episode of television. But I think it, it struck me because something about it, whether it was Dwight Schultz's performance or whether it was the idea behind it of, you know, not be, having your molecules sort of, you know, twisted and, you know, <laughs> all that kind of thing. I don't know. It, it struck with me as almost as quite 
quite scary in a way. And I think I've always leant towards quite quite scary stories in fiction. You know, I, I enjoy horror. My bread and butter with my own podcast is uh, The X-Files, which came out not long after that episode, actually, Realm of Fear. So that was my first TV experience. And from then on, I explored more of the next generation. I really became hooked on TV Star, Star Trek when I found Deep Space Nine. From the third season onwards, I hasten to add. Um, from Probably from about the... <laughs> well, I say that. I think it was probably around the point of the latter sort of... Not half, but three quarters into season two of Deep Space Nine, which is where I think it gets really good. Around the time of, say, The uh, the Wire, which is the Garrick episode, and things like The Collaborator and The Marquee Two-Parter, which I think is a real turning point for that show, um, building up to the finale. So that was really what got me into that. But as I say, just going back, it was the movies. And the first movie I ended up watching was The Search for Spock, oddly enough. Okay. <laughs> Not being like <laughs> the beginning of a story. But I think I was taken by... And it's it's not my favourite Star Trek movie. You'd think it would be, given it was the first one I watched. But it's not my favourite, and it never was, oddly enough. But I think what struck me was it had a real balance of all kinds of things. It was it was fun. It was quite moving in places. It was exciting. It made me laugh. You know, there, there was a real concoction to it. And I was just hooked from then on on the the movies. The But, but the more the, mo- the movies, obviously, of the original crew. And I think if somebody was to, was to say to me... Let's watch Star Trek. What What do you want to watch? If it's not an episode of Deep Space Nine, it would more than likely be one of the old movies. More specifically, either The Wrath of Khan, The Voyage Home, or The Undiscovered Country. So it's it's quite tell- it's quite interesting that we're covering Nicholas Meyer on Absolutely, this episode quite yeah, a lot yeah. because he's he's behind two of my favourite pieces of Star Trek of all time. Right? Yeah, or oh, three? No. Well, actually, yes, of course he is, because of The Voyage. I always forget this, because he didn't direct The Voyage Home. Yeah, yeah. I forget that he wrote a lot of it. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Wrote all the good bits of it, I'd say. I mean, mean, not that there's anything wrong with the other stuff, but um, he he basically wrote all the stuff set in the present day, didn't he? And Harv Bennett, I think, wrote the kind of wraparound, um, the sort of opening and the, the, you know, kind of final section back back in the future. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it's the stuff in 1987, which is 1986, 1987, which is the best. You know, that's what everyone remembers about that film, which is the Nick Meyer stuff. But um, yeah, and that and that was that was that carried on throughout my teenage years. Then, and I uh, I remember writing. <laughs> I was probably the uncoolest kid at school because I used to write Star Trek stories, and I used to, I used to have a red folder, a red deep folder that you would put um, like a square box, really, that you would put things in. And I remember. Uh, I used to I used to have all my stories that was obviously this is before the days where we had the internet or we had I really had a decent PC so I used to longhand them all out and then I used to put them but thinking back it was more bits of prose but also more um, episode descriptions of, of ideal Star Trek seasons and then I would write on the the underside of the cover of the box the actual episode titles and things like that and I, I must have taken it to school for some reason God knows why because. In the like early nineties, admitting at school that you were a Star Trek fan was the most uncool thing you could ever do because the geek, the geek was not like in fashion yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, and uh, I think I got a little bit uh, yeah, bullied for that in in a not in a horrible way but in a in a bit of a way, and I do remember writing a novel in inverted commas, um, which I only ever showed showed my mum. I was about 13. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a Deep Space Nine novel 
uh, called Liaison, and it was about Worf taking the Defiant into the Gamma Quadrant for some kind of liaison. And it, I say novel, it was about 70 pages in a small notebook. Yeah. <laughs> and my writing was big. <laughs> you could probably enter that in Strange New Worlds. <laughs> you Maybe. should dig it out. You never know. I wish I could find it. I think yeah. my mom might still have it. I hope really? so. And I yeah, actually yeah. Made, a, I made a cover. I did some drawings. I'm a terrible artist. So that would be a travesty to look back on. <laughs> trying Me trying to draw a wharf. No. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, from then on, I just used to catch up. I, I, I used to catch it all. I think... I, I was I loved all of Deep Space Nine. I was addicted to Deep Space Nine. I dipped in and out of Next Generation, although realistically, when I was really getting into the TV stuff, it was more coming towards an end. So it was Deep Space Nine I mainly watched, and I would say the first four seasons of Voyager. It was around season five when I when I tuned out, and I've I've since seen most of five season five. I've seen some of season six and i've seen almost none of season seven really i've seen some of that and i'm i'm I'm, you know one day i'll go back to it season five of voyage is pretty good i think i mean those are the those are the the two well i don't know i mean it's always a big divide isn't it whether people prefer the early voyage or the later voyager but season four and five i'd say are a good sort of package of a strong writing i think four is great i think four is is actually one of the best seasons of star trek season four of uh, voyager it's great all the way through um and five does have some good timeless is a great example of a really really great episode um so five does have its moments but yeah it's i need to go back and and rediscover that i did go then i did check out enterprise as well and i um i enjoyed i enjoyed some of it but i only really got interested in it when the mani koto years came along but by then it was by then it was too late yeah <laughs> uh, sadly but yeah it, it's it's the, the the point of it me just talking you know through my journey it, is that i've always it's always been there there have been times and i think you may have said similar duncan that it's ebbed and flowed you know my, my fandom it's you know there have been times where it's been more strong when i was young and then when i was in my 20s it maybe not vanished but it went more into the background and now as i've got older the more i love it and the more i rediscover it quite often and i you know i'll I'll find myself watching episodes like when we watch the mind's eye you know i hadn't seen the mind's eye for years (laughs) and it's all the more enjoyable to cherish it now really one of the things that struck me having been you know interested in star trek and a a star trek fan for a long time is that going back to it now as an adult i mean i'm sort of in my mid-30s i think you're around the same age you know, sort of going back to it, you see different things to what you saw as a child or as a teenager uh, growing up with it. Um, and certainly for me, there was kind of a bit of a gap in between where I, I wasn't completely, you know, shut off from Star Trek, but I, I wasn't as involved. And then I sort of got more back into it more recently, I suppose, in the last few years. How do you find re-watching those, those films, those episodes over and over again now that, I mean, have they changed a lot for you? Do they mean something different to what they meant to you when you when you first watched them as a child or as a teenager? I think there's a there's an element of nostalgia in places. You know, I'm not going to lie. I think when I when I watch certain certain things, I, I may enjoy them more than I would do coming into it into it new. But I th- and I think it's impo- impossible to escape nostalgia if you grew up watching something. You know, you're always going to enjoy it. I think. What I've come to appreciate the most about Star Trek is to enjoy the episodes that aren't about like the galactic dramatic consequences. You know, one of the things I, I, I one of the reasons I think Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek series is because it manages to do both. It manages to tell really powerful character stories like say Duet, and it also manages to do episodes like, you know, The Way of the Warrior or The Die is Cast or A Call to Arms and things like that that are just about, you know, the entire 
you know, galaxy just <laughs> and the politics. And when I was a kid, it was that stuff that I lived for. You know, it was the it was either the mythology elements or it was the you know the big dramatic galactic stories. You know, when I was growing up, one of my favourite movies was First Contact, and I still love First Contact. But it was but the thing I loved the most about that film was the first like ten minutes with the Borg cube and the Armada and and all this. And I think now <laughs> now as I get older, I would much not prefer because I love all the space battle stuff and I love all that, but. I think you could sit me down and, and I would sit down and enjoy the inner light, for instance, more, and more probably than I than I did before back in the old days. You know, the, the, an episode like that when I was a kid filled me with a little bit of dread because oh, I've got to spend an hour watching Picard play his flute. Oh, boring. Where's the space battles? <laughs> you know, now I can see the power of it. I can see the richness in it. And that's and I think that's what's happened. I think the, the older you get, the more you appreciate, the more you slow down. <laughs> I think the more the slower, meditative, you know, character-based episodes or the ones that speak to something about the human condition actually become more resonant. And I, I think that's something I found when I've dipped back into Star Trek, really. Well, it's interesting you should say that because in a way, I think that the topic that we're discussing today, which is about the kind of influence of books in the Wrath of Khan... I was sort of thinking about it um, over the last week or so. You know, what, what, what do these books represent? What does it mean uh, bringing these kind of physical objects into Star Trek in that way? And I think a part of it, maybe we could say, is that there's something with the Ruther Khan of kind of Star Trek growing up, you know, and I know that Nicholas Meyer, when he wrote the script, he was not a Star Trek fan. He'd, um, the episodes he'd watched, he thought they were a bit cheesy. He wasn't, he didn't really get it. There were too many things that were off-putting to him. He didn't like the bright coloured uniforms. He didn't like the kind of 60s uh, aspects of it. And he really wanted to make it seem as he felt more real, more military, more kind of, you know, in a sense, maybe more grown up. And of course, the big theme in that film is, you know, Kirk getting older, becoming as this sort of middle-aged character. He doesn't have the kind of flush of youth that he did in the TV series. How can we kind of reinterpret this character and move this character forward in quite a real way? And, and you know, look at these characters in quite a sort of psychologically believable way that maybe in some ways is quite different from what we had in the 1960s and the kind of uh, sort of formula of, of TV writing then. And to me, I think this this bringing in these books is sort of a part of that. It's sort of staking a claim to something a little bit more serious. It's staking a claim to a kind of literary tradition. It's making, you know, both the hero and the villain in this film uh, quite literate. You know, the fact that Kirk is happily reading a Dickens novel, the fact that Khan uh, is, you know, spouting Moby Dick is obviously a favourite novel of his. Um, it kind of it gives them a slightly grown-up sense. And I think from that we get, you know, in later Star Trek, it's kind of established the captains read books. I mean, I'm thinking of Picard and Janeway in particular. You know, Picard has his his beautiful Shakespeare volume. He's always um, reading some or other worthy hardback. Janeway likes to read Dante. They're quite kind of inspirational characters in a sense, quite different from the Kirk of the TV series in some ways, and of the movies, who has this kind of flippant, jokey side. It, it's, it kind of allows us an insight into a sort of more serious side of the captains as well yeah and i think there's a real case to be made that star trek was created by gene roddenberry and up until about nine up until 1982 that was gene roddenberry star trek i think there's a real case to be made that 1982 onwards is nick meyer star trek and i think this is this is the genesis of it, it, it the way he 
the way he changed the, the look and feel of the Wrath of Khan, you know, based quite a lot on budgetary concerns. You know, he had a quarter of the budget of the motion picture and he was told, you've got to make a film on that because we, we think we can, you know, triple our money. And his reaction to that was to make something a lot more stripped down, a lot more militaristic, a lot more learned, oddly enough, even though it's an action film, even though there's more action in The Wrath of Khan than in the motion picture, you know, and it's shorter film, it's a cheaper film. He managed to to do that. But he Star Trek has, from then on, a real respect of literature, a real respect of mythology, a real respect of, you know, absorbing culture. And beforehand... You know, dare I say it, Roddenberry, I don't think, was as learned a man as, as Mayer. You know, I mean, you, you, only have, you only have to read his, you know, you only have to read A View from the Bridge, which is his fantastic autobiography, which you've mentioned, which I would recommend to anyone, because it, it talks in depth about the Wrath of Khan and about his, you know, his approach to Star Trek. And the amount of allusions he talks he talks about, the amount of, you know, references he just throws in there, you know, off the back, you know, it, it, whether it will be King Lear or it will be Hornblower or it will be, you know, all, all these things. And he's just throwing in these, <laughs> these authors and these works and all this stuff. And, you know, Roddenberry, taking nothing away from the man, but I, I think his approach to the future and his approach to the evolution of, of that world was a lot more simplistic in many ways and a lot more if anything, on the nose and oddly enough, you know, far more obsessed with religion uh, than, than Mayer ever was, really. Because I, I, I'm even though Roddenberry was somebody who, he was obsessed with religion, you know, almost every single, of the, every single episode in the old Star Trek <laughs> has some kind of godly allusion to it. You know, there is so much of that in there. And I think they're, they're two very different men with two very different approaches as to how they, they saw this world. And Mayer's is to make it a lot more of a grown-up, fleshed-out world which does have a real stake in culture and respect for culture. Well, I think maybe one of the things that Nick Meyer didn't like about the 1960s Star Trek was, he says somewhere in that book, he he got so sort of um, hung up on the, as he puts it, the science, that he wasn't noticing the fiction, that he found it sort of distracting, all the kind of futurism and the kind of design and so on. And I, I suppose Roddenberry's idea you know, and it was of its time, was very much sort of utopian, very much kind of imagining this sort of idealised world in the future. And I think in relation to physical books, you know, you see that in a sense uh, in the episode Court Martial, when Kirk is put on trial, he has this lawyer who he himself describes as a crackpot. He's this funny old guy. I mean, he's a sort of, you know, turns out to be a bit of a genius or whatever, but he's a bit of a weirdo. And one of the ways that his being a weirdo is demonstrated is that he has all these hardback books in his office and Kirk comes into his office and sort of looks around disdainfully basically and they have this conversation where basically this guy uh cogley is his name the lawyer talks about how important these old books these old sort of physical tangible artifacts of human culture are and kirk basically says well why don't you just use a computer it's much easier it's quicker it's faster that's kind of the future and i think in some ways that's a sort of the the shift from that to this older kirk uh in the wrath of khan who as um, McCoy, I think, points out, is is obsessed with antiques. You know, if you look at his um, quarters, it, well, his apartment on Earth, it's for, this is very much a man who's sort of given up on this this youthful 
side that we that we're used to from the TV series. You know, it's it's full of partly full of nautical uh, objects, bits of old you know ships' bells and and sort of nautical equipment, models of, of sailing ships and so on, but also just various old things, old weapons, old you, you know. It seems a bit like a museum, basically, his apartment. And, and in some ways, that's given a sort of negative inflection, but it has a positive side too, I think. And you know, the way that these books feed into the narrative. It's quite interesting. So uh, maybe we should just talk a bit about the, the the books that we're going to talk about in this episode. So, I mean, there's two books that loom large, really, over the Wrath of Khan, I suppose. A Tale of Two Cities and Moby Dick, one for the hero, one for the villain. Uh, a Tale of Two Cities, obviously, is the book that uh, Spock gives Kirk at the beginning of the film, that they have a discussion about the first line of that book. And then at the end of the film, uh, it comes back and has this uh, greater significance, in a sense, because of the sacrifice that, that Spock has made. And Khan, uh, similarly, is spouting lines from Moby Dick constantly whenever he's sort of trying to get at Kirk. It's, it's a bit of a, it's kind of what we have a rehash of in Star Trek VI with all the Shakespeare that Christopher Plummer is, is spouting. But it's also, we see a copy of Moby Dick uh, on Khan's bookshelf, along with various other books that we'll um, maybe come to later. Uh, Paradise Lost, King Lear, Dante's Inferno, The Bible, and one that I don't think we're going to have much to say about, which is the statute regulating commerce. I'm not sure what that's doing there or, or how that ended up there, but another big <laughs> fat hardback book. Let's take these one at a time. Maybe we'll start with A Tale of Two Cities, um, since that, you know, is one of these two core books that are kind of threaded through the film. First of all, Tony, why don't you give us a bit of background about A Tale of Two Cities? Okay, well, A Tale of Two Cities was written in, um, I think it was 1858, I think it came out, and it was um, a book by Charles Dickens, which he considered to be one of his best, if not his best work. And it's essentially a a, a book about... Uh, the French Revolution, as told through sort of an omnipresent narrator in some in some respects, talking say about seventy years later, seventy eighty years later, uh, in in the present day uh, of of Dickens at the time, and it's so it's set around seventeen seventy seventeen seventies when the French Revolution took place. It's it's called a tale of two cities because it's about ostensibly the the two cities involved in this in this revolution you've got london and you've got paris which is the 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 center of this fermenting revolution but on in both cities there is a sense of change brewing there is the the characters involved are people who are in the middle of of situations you know that, that are morphing around them and i think you know the big uh, the character in terms of in relation to captain kirk in that book is a character called sydney carton who ends up essentially being somebody who spends the entire story attempting to reconcile who he is in many respects you know through the prism of other people quite often and he ends up essentially being a you know a a representation of a real wasted potential and has a certain level of you know a, a noble kind of end in many respects you know he, he kind of he kind of sacrifices in order to in order, in order to, for things to carry on, so the, the, you know there, there are there are not just collect, connections to Kirk, but there are connections to Spock as well, and in terms of what happens to him, so it's quite a key book in many respects for Kirk to have because he meant in, in some respects it's foreshadowing a lot of what's going to happen. Even though the reason I think Spock gives him that book is the same reason that you know Bones comes to his apartment and gives him a Romulan ale and says to him get back the enterprise because you're 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 growing old and you're 
you're losing <laughs> who you are. Spock does it in a more subtle Vulcan way, gives him a piece of literature to read and says, read this, you are Sidney Carton, you will understand by the end. And it's telling that quite a lot of, the, quite a lot of this film, Kirk has the book with him. You know, he's, he's reading that. It's, as he's reading that book, he's experiencing this journey. And then by the end, uh, he reads, it's funny because he reads the opening lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The famous opening lines of the book, almost with a puzzled expression when Spock gives it him. Like he doesn't quite understand why he's got it. Uh, but then by the end, when he recites the words that um, I think Sidney Carton says, or are said about Sidney Carton. They're his thoughts, really. They're, they're, it's like a, it's a, quite a strange ending to the book. It basically because he he goes to the to the guillotine. He um, sacrifices. He basically swaps himself for another man who, who I suppose he he feels deserves to live more than him. Who has a family. Who has a future. Who's a kind of good man in the world, doing good things. And Sidney Carton is this sort of wastrel. Uh, so he basically uh, does a, you, you know, swaps the two of them because they resemble each other and goes to his death. And the final lines are his sort of imagined, basically, if he could have said anything, this is what he would have said. And it is quite a long speech, but of which, obviously, those final that that final section is probably the most famous. Yeah, and it's and the, he says it's a far far better thing that that I've ever done, and as and as and it's a far greater rest that i go to than i've ever known it's a very yeah it's a very melancholy sort of some sad ending but the, the the thing is by the end of the wrath of khan kirk is reciting those words like you said you very you very rightly said those are his thoughts he's understood the point of the book that it's about his own his rebirth in the wake of losing the the person that he he cares about the most that 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 illusion that sense of thread through the film in terms of a tale of two cities, is something oddly enough. I don't think everyone would pick up on, you know, straight away. And it, and it, but it's very much there. I think the film sort of slightly wrong foots you in a sense because you assume in on a sort of surface level. Obviously, it's a story in terms of plot. We know it's one character sacrifices themselves uh, so that another can live, and so in a sense, you might see it as Kirk is saying, "This is what." You, you know, Spock was trying to tell me he's he's given his life so that I can survive and so that the rest of the Enterprise can survive and so on. But I suppose what's quite, you know, which is tragic enough in itself that, that Spock has died and he's made this noble sacrifice and so on. But I suppose what makes it more tragic in some ways is that thinking about it in terms of A Tale of Two Cities, you sort of feel it should have been Kirk that died. He should have been the one to sacrifice himself. Because in in terms of A Tale of Two Cities, it's very much, you know, Sidney Carson has to be the one to die because he's the one who's who's not kind of living up to his potential, who's not, you know, contributing to the world in the right way. And the guy he dies for, Charles Darney, is is quite a sort of Spock-like character in some ways. He's very decent, he's very upstanding, he's very sort of, uh, you know, a moral, a good sort of person. Sidney Carson is much more of a kind of human, earthy kind of Captain Kirky type person. He's a card player, he likes, you know, he likes playing games. He's quite, uh, he's a bit of a cheat. I mean, initially, he in the early part of the book, he rescues uh, the other character, Charles Darney, from prosecution um, in a in a uh, court case by again through this resemblance and again it's it's this kind of idea of slightly cheating the system which I suppose is what we see with with Kirk in the Kobayashi Maru and that's exactly what's going on in that court case is it's uh, it's an impossible situation the guy is going to be executed in Britain for this crime and then Sidney Carson manages to get him off based on the fact that they that they look similar but definitely I suppose once you think about it this extra level that really. 
Kirk is the Carton character, not the Darnie character. And it's kind of emphasised in the film, I think, when Spock says to him, commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. And the waste of material is exactly what that character is about, really. He's never managed to find his his sort of place in the world. He's never managed to to find a way to contribute. Obviously, Kirk had. I mean, Kirk had that in the past, you know, in the TV series, and he's lost it. And um, I suppose really the theme of the film, I guess, is partly how is he going to get it back? I think it's interesting when he says um, at the end... There's this discussion at the beginning when Spock gives him the book. He he says the best of, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A message, Spock, and Spock denies that there's a message. And actually, Nick Meyer also in his uh, memoir slightly plays the same game. The way he tells the story, he says uh, he basically just felt why don't people read books in Star Trek? That's what normal people do. He said uh, if you listen to the audio commentary on the Wrath of Khan, he actually says um, I could imagine the future without people, but I can't imagine a future without books. It was this kind of <laughs> bee in his bonnet of like you know where are the books in this in this universe? So the way he tells the story, he basically just pulled down a book off the shelf at random and it happened to be A Tale of Two Cities. So he decided, well, I'm going to work this into the script. So he kind of says the same thing that Spock does. That it doesn't mean anything. There's no message. Uh, he, he says, this is a quote. Why is Kirk given a copy of A Tale of Two Cities? Because that was the book I grabbed off my shelf. Yes, but in the end, it also became an organic part of the movie. So it's this kind of fortunate experience that it, it kind of comes to mean something. But I think when Kirk says it's... Th- at the end, it, Carol Marcus says, because he quotes this line from the book, she says, what is that, a poem? And he says, no, it's something Spock was trying to tell me on my birthday. W- one of the things that made me think is, does he mean, you kind of assume he means by giving him the book on his birthday, and that, as you say, it's about this sort of Sydney Carson thing. It made me start thinking, though, I mean, I've watched this film dozens of times. I don't have a sense, I don't know if you do, how much time passes during the course of this film? Because it made it made me start thinking, actually, is is it still Kirk's birthday at the end of the film? Because I don't think we ever see anyone go to bed. I don't think we ever see the amount of time that we know passes. I mean, we know there's the two hours where they're down on the Genesis cave. Other than that, everything seems to pass quite quickly. It it just sort of made me think, does it put a slightly different spin on this film in a sense if it's still Kirk's birthday at the end and actually the whole thing's only taken place in a very short space of time? Well, that's really interesting because there's nothing necessarily to refute that. You know, a lot, lot, I suppose the, the... the most convincing argument against that would be everything that happens on um, on regular one, you know, with all the the people dying and maybe simply the, the the time it takes for things to happen, you know, the the reliance to get where it needs to go, get where it's going, the enterprise to get to where it's going. But then there's nothing to say that it wasn't all within you know a relatively short warp distance, really. Considering that you know the Enterprise isn't on Earth when it all happens; it's out on you know on a de- on doing the Kobayashi Maru, it's out in space. So it's 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 entirely possible that it could be set. I always assumed it was set maybe over the span of like 24 hours. Personally, I always thought that maybe it was over over a day and a night. I, I always thought it was fairly condensed. So that's what I mean. So and say so. Say if the film starts in the morning. I mean, I'm just saying hypothetically. The film starts in the morning. It could be. I, I don't know. It just sort of it 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 struck me. It, when he says it's something he was trying to tell me on his, on my birthday, it sort of implies it was a while ago. But it could actually still be his birthday at the time that he's saying it. In which case, it's it's more ambiguous then because then is is it the book that's the message or is his gesture of self sacrifice in itself a message that he's trying to tell him on his birthday? The other thing that struck me about A Tale of Two Cities is this kind of theme of revolutionary, the, the kind of terror 
of revolution. And going back to Space Seed, the episode where, where Khan uh, originally appeared, there's an interesting conversation where they're kind of arguing about what it meant, this kind of, this uprising of, of the genetically enhanced, the augments, as we later call them. And Spock basically talks of it in terms of a period of tyranny, an awful time. Khan refers to it as a time of great dreams. And this is the kind of dichotomy that is in those early lines of A Tale of Two Cities, the best of times and the worst of times. You know, at one and the same time, this experience was this kind of, you know, this kind of noble uh, rising up against, you know, this kind of ancient oppressive regime. And at the same time, it was incredibly violent and cruel and, and unpleasant. So there's this kind of this dual thing. And I think in some ways that's the kind of background to the Khan character and to this whole group of people that he has with him. And that's sort of in the book as well. In the, it's another kind of layer of meaning in a sense. You can also, you can also equate the idea of, of revolution to es- essentially what Khan does once they find him on Seti Alpha 5 and you know he, he takes over the Reliant and everything. It's, it's admittedly by that point more revenge but there is that sense of, of this revolutionary force who takes control of, of, of something that you would think is inviolate, you would think is completely set in stone, a Federation vessel, and then uses it against what they would think. You know, when the Enterprise first sees Reliant, they can't understand why it's not doing what it would normally do. It's not answering hails. It's, you know, it's them raising its shields and things like that. It is that revolutionary insurgency, you know, that Khan w- would have... T- carried on doing potentially although there is a sense that khan is very aware that he doesn't have a long time left <laughs> and that he is he is on a, a path of destiny going back you know again it's destiny that, that's a big part of this film you know he he believes his destiny is to take revenge on kirk so there is there is a combination of different things there. His destiny is avenging himself on Kirk, and Kirk's destiny is somehow sort of rejuvenating himself, finding the the person that he used to be, not being Sidney Carson anymore, I suppose, and you know, kind of breaking out of that mold. You know, another theme I suppose that comes in right at the end of the of the film is is this idea of memory, and this leading into Star Trek Three. Spock obviously tells McCoy, remember. And then McCoy says, um, he's really not dead as long as we remember him, which literally turns out to be to be true. Uh that you you know, by remembering him and by the quirk of the Genesis planet, they're able to to sort of bring him back to life. And interestingly, Sidney Carton in A Tale of Two Cities has a nickname, and his nickname is Memory, because he um has this uh you know uh, although he's this sort of dissolute wastrel character he has a very fine mind and that's the, that's where the sort of sense of wasted potential comes from it's actually intellectually he you know he could be doing something much more with his life in a sense yeah very true it's very true has to be said though about the mccoy thing obviously and that line and this is something that people who know the wrath of khan will be aware of nick meyer didn't write any of this assuming that spock was coming back he wrote it very much as a case of he 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 didn't. There was no plan at that point for Spock to come back, and that for McCoy to be, you know, quite literally saying that in many respects. It was very much that that meaningful sense of this man is gone. And then when they when they added the you know the um, the missile coffin on the Genesis planet at the end, Nick Meyer didn't want anything to do with that. No, he was furious about it. He was really angry. <laughs> they had to get someone else to shoot that that scene, yeah. I think, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, they did, because by that point they decided that they were going to potentially go down this path. And he said, well, that's not what I wrote. That's not my story. And he's always stuck by that, which, you know, does make sense if you if you read the man and you listen to the man, because he's very he's very determined about the kind of vision he has and that he puts 
he puts a solitary story, you know, a, a very focused tale above, you know, I mean, God knows what he must think of things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he probably just grits his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> the very yeah, idea. Definitely. Although it's interesting, I mean, had he known that they were, that it was going to, that they were going to bring him back, he, I'm sure he couldn't have written such a moving and, you know, powerful film in a sense. I mean, it's kind of, so in a way he was, I mean, no, not that they knew that was the plan. It was only really once they started test screenings and the film was doing really well and they suddenly realised they might have a massive hit on their hands that they started thinking, oh, actually, you know, maybe this is a mistake. And I think Leonard Nimoy started thinking, actually, do I want to, you know, say goodbye to this character if if everything's sort of turning around in a slightly different direction? Well, shall we move on then from A Tale of Two Cities and talk about uh, Khan's big book in this film, which is Moby Dick. Now, obviously, Khan quotes or, or paraphrases Moby Dick at various times. It's He's sort of spouting uh, lines from that book. Moby Dick uh, by Herman Melville was published in 1851. And it's the story, if you want a summary, you can go to Star Trek First Contact where um, Captain Picard and Lily Sloan will give you one. But basically it's about a, a captain, a sea captain, Captain Ahab, who's had an encounter with this white whale, uh, Moby Dick. He's lost his leg. He's kind of lost his mind. He's become bent on revenge, uh, basically to the exclusion of everything else. And he takes uh, another voyage um, on a ship called the Peacod and they go out out in search of this whale um, and he you know offers rewards to his crew and so on if they can help him catch and kill this whale that that he feels has kind of uh, destroyed him in a sense so it's very much this grand sort of shakespearean drama it's a bit of a beast of a book i would recommend it It it's an amazing book uh and you know one of the sort of greats of american literature but it it is huge it's kind of whale-like in itself partly because there's a lot of uh digression and a lot of kind of historical background and whaling and all these sort of things in addition to the sort of actual story and the plot but i suppose the main things from the point of view of um of khan is this idea of just obsessive revenge really to the point of of madness in a sense um and also that that ahab is this kind of slightly i mean we're going to come to talk a bit about paradise lost and so on ahab is a slightly kind of demonic slightly satanic character himself i mean he kind of toys with sort of witchcraft and satanic invocations and so on he he performs a kind of a baptism in the name of the devil of his harpineers and so on so there's this kind of idea that his mission is is sort of ungodly um, there's a description of him in the book as a grand ungodly godlike man and i suppose in a sense we could apply that you know quite appropriately to khan he he is godlike in the sense that he's this you know super literally sort of superman he's superhuman he has superhuman strength but at the same time he's you know, there's there's something ungodly, there's something awful and, and evil and, and, and sort of wrong about him. And those two things seem to sort of go together. Yeah, and it's, it, you only have to look at, you know, he's the way, that his form. I mean, it's interesting because in Space Seed, he's, Ricardo Montalban is, is obviously younger because he was 1966, 67. But he, he's, clad, he, he's, he's pretty much, for most of it, clad in, you know, quite regal sort of prince, you know, clothing. And then in this film, it's pretty much from the off. You see this this torso, this bare, you know, quite rippling torso. Infamously, the, it was Mon, it was Montalban. You know, for a man his age, he had a very good physique. And you know, most people would have thought that thought that was maybe some sort of you know pl- cast or something like that. But no, it actually is him. And it's 
it, it, it does, it, even though he has this shock of white hair and he's old and craggy and he's wearing, you know, kind of sort of adopted rags that he's sort of turned, nomadic rags that he's turned into something quite, you know, theatrical in a way, he still has that look about him that you could chisel him on as part of a, a portrait. You know, you could put him in stone and you could have him stand there over someone, you know, pointing or looking regal. And it, that vision of him and that physical manifestation of him it is very godlike. It is very powerful in that sense. And he, 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 not just the performance, but the way he looks sort of radiates that power, which equates to, you know, as you say, someone like Ahab in his determination to best his whale. In this case, it's Khan's determination. His whale is Kirk. Absolutely. This, this you know, the Kirk who has wronged him in the, in the past, even if, you know, unintentionally. Although, interestingly, I mean, we say that it's Kirk and obviously the Khan's vengeance is directed at Kirk. But in a funny way, I think there's also an interesting kind of parallel between the the idea of the white whale, which is is what they're after in Moby Dick and the Enterprise. And there's a line in the script. If you read Nick Meyer's script, um, he actually describes the Enterprise as as being like a whale. I'll I'll find the reference because I've got a copy of it here. This is in the battle in the Mutara Nebula. They've had this conversation where about two-dimensional thinking and they've kind of dropped low and obviously most people read the battle scenes in this film as submarine warfare and and that was a big part of it and certainly Nick Meyer was uh indebted to the kind of submarine stories but there was also this kind of you know this this earlier kind of nautical tradition that he was very interested in and obviously very interested in Moby Dick and so in his um description uh, in the script he says reliant motionless in the foreground amid occasional flashes now behind reliant and from below like a great whale rising from the depths enterprise rises vertically slowly passing the unsuspecting enemy so he literally makes a connection between the ship and and a whale uh, which in the context of moby dick is quite interesting because that's you know that's what khan is is trying to destroy and then obviously you can kind of take this line of thinking further you know a couple of films down the line what do we get we don't have an enterprise the enterprise has been blown up but kirk and his crew you know spend the entire film going off looking for whales so there's this weird sort of uh, <laughs> you know almost the and then they find the whales they, they, you know they take the whales back and they get a new enterprise out of it so there's this weird sort of probably unconscious association between these between these two things that, that maybe you, you know i mean i'm being a bit fanciful here but but you know i think possibly for nick Meyer, there is this sort of weird association there that that the enterprise is you know it is like a ship it is like a submarine but it is also like this kind of creature rising out of the depths as he describes it i don't necessarily think that much of what nick meyer does is coincidence even though he might try and sell it as coincidence i think even if it's you know subconscious to an extent i think he's very acutely aware of a lot of literary references like i mentioned earlier a lot of you know symbolism and a lot of recurring ideas you know, and you only have to look at the three scripts he contributed to in Star Trek movies to see, you know, those through lines. So, no, it wouldn't surprise me at all. It wouldn't surprise me. I never thought of it quite in those explicit terms in terms of whales. <laughs> it's really true. It's basically it's really true. Star Trek movies are, yeah, a, a, an ongoing story about whales. That's <laughs> and, and Moby Dick, by the it, yeah. time we get yeah, yeah. to uh, First Contact, which is, yeah, which is funny enough, that is, mm. that's the film that people, if you you'd say Moby Dick in Star Trek, that's probably the film most people would immediately think of. It would be Picard's, you know, and, and, and Lily talking about it. You know, people don't necessarily go to Khan, even though it's on Khan's bookshelf. And you, I, when we, when I rewatched Wrath of Khan this weekend, I I paused on the the shot when Chekhov before his Butney Bay, yeah, Butney <laughs> Bay moment, uh, <laughs> and you can see 
all th- these books, you know, uh, and Moby Dick is front and center with it. So, you know, th- these were the books that that Khan had with him when he was um, he was marooned on what he thought was his lovely SETI Alpha Six. I guess one of the things that's interesting, just thinking about the way that Nick Meyer approaches Star Trek. And that maybe is informed. I mean, uh, what the big book really that is not explicitly in this film, but that hangs over it, or, or not just one book, but a series of books, are the Hornblower books, uh, which obviously were a, a series of novels about this character Horatio Hornblower, seeing his his career all all through his life, and probably we'll come back to Hornblower maybe in a future episode and, and talk about that in a bit more detail. But both Kirk and actually Picard were to some extent, or to quite a large extent, by Gene Roddenberry based on Horatio Hornblower, and and so. Certainly Nick Meyer, he, he basically, the only the way he managed to find his way into writing The Wrath of Khan was he said he had this kind of epiphany. He said, I would write a Hornblower script relocating it in outer space uh, because he had no interest in science fiction, but he loved these kind of, uh, you know, sort of almost kind of boys adventure fiction, this kind of these uh, stories about um, these sailors and so on. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting in terms of sea battles and also particularly in terms of Moby Dick and the whale is you know the side of the whale kind of looming out from the depths we see in in Nick Meyer's Star Trek films you know in this one and also in the undiscovered country whenever he writes ship battles they're not you know most ship battles in Star Trek are kind of ships line up and they and they you know they fire each other and everything is reasonably kind of um out in the open in a sense but Nick Meyer's ship battles the ship is always hidden it's cloaked or it's it's disguised by a nebula there's this kind of mystery there's this kind of sense of of where is it they can't find it which is very much kind of tying into that nautical tradition and tying into that idea of you you know the whale coming up from the depths and you don't know where it is and the kind of the depths of the ocean being mysterious and occluded and kind of you can't really see what's where and you, and you don't quite know what's going on I, I do think that kind of informs maybe his approach consciously or otherwise to to writing these stories well you can definitely see that uh, obviously not just in the wrath of khan but in the undiscovered country with the, the final battle between kirk and chang you know with the the cloaked uh, klingon ship that can fire you know it is it is that it definitely it's definitely there and it, it is a it is a recurring thread through mayer's films i think the other thing as well that you get a lot of and you know you kind of alluded to this there is that mayer's approach to star trek is very humanist I think, because if if you look at the way he the way he comes at it, you mentioned you know that he's he wasn't really interested in science fiction. He's not interested in telling stories about tons of aliens with lots of makeup and and you know all this kind of thing. He he doesn't really understand that, and he admits as much in his memoir. He's he's interested in in telling very human stories, and and it's interesting when when he does get alien characters to play with, and he doesn't until the undiscovered country with the Klingons. A big key element of that is the idea of human rights. And this, this, you know, the, the fact that the Klingon delegation are insulted by the very idea that they would use the term human, you know, as a, as a catch-all description. But he is very interested in that human, you know, idea. He humanises the Star Trek universe enormously. You know, he takes it from the motion picture and, and the 60s series, which was obviously very, you know, it was great and it looked at all these great scientific concepts, but it was very heightened reality. And the motion picture was very you know, space age, utopian kind of approach, very distant, very, you know, th- viewed through a glass lens. Whereas, there, there, you know, there are scenes in, in The Wrath of Khan, you only have to look at the, the Kirk and Bones scene. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's two guys who just happen to be friends who are just talking about the, their life. And I don't think you'd really seen a scene like that before in Star Trek. And, and you see it throughout all of Maya's scripts, 
The Voyage Home, enormously, obviously it's based heavily on, on a modern day Earth of that time, enormously human film, full of those interactions. And then finally, when you get to the undiscovered country, it's about <laughs> ultimately the idea being that it doesn't matter whether you're human, Klingon or whatever, you have a common idea of, you know, a common shared idea of of how to be and, and the kind of, you know, progressive future you want to create. And I think that's that's a really strong element to what he's trying to create in the Star Trek universe. And I think it's why... I think it's one of the reasons he's so interested in, in culture and literature and bringing that in, because he wants to bring in these very, these very powerful human stories to a world which could very easily get detached and become about really strange and weird concepts. And I think, for me personally, you know, I mentioned earlier my Star Trek journey and the things I love. The only point where Star Trek loses me sometimes, occasionally, is when it drowns in technobabble, or it, it, you have an entire episode that could have been processed through a futuristic computer. <laughs> and, and Next Generation was guilty of this quite often. You know, there's, there's a great line in the, in the memoir where he says, I never understood why people in the future would say negative instead of no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that sums it up. You know, you don't need all of those elements to make it a futuristic story. You just need a powerful story with power, powerful characters and a powerful message and theme. And I think that's why he's so interested in literature. He's very, I mean, it's partly about character. One of the things you were sort of talking about, about Deep Space Nine being very strong on character compared to earlier Star Trek. And I think Nick Meyer is, is sort of doing the same thing. You know, he, he manages to bring Kirk into the, the kind of Star Trek movie universe and make him much more real, make him much more of a real person, more three-dimensional person. I mean, and it's partly by showing less pleasant sides of his character you know in this film he's kind of he's this wasted potential he seems to be kind of depressed he's kind of he's not happy with his life he's not the great hero you know we think of Kirk as this sort of archetypal charming uh ladies man you know heroic very appealing very aspirational character no one wants to be Kirk in the Wrath of Khan uh you, you know and at least until he starts kind of getting back into it and starts showing flashes of his old you, you know for example when he bluffs Khan that's he's he's sort of beginning to get back get back his mojo in a sense but you know certainly at the beginning of the film um and then in the undiscovered country again we get a very prejudiced kirk we get him uh expressing all of them to an extent expressing quite racist attitudes you know they're not these kind of idealized figures that we we're used to they, they've kind of been brought down to to earth in a sense uh, with a bit of a bump they're human they're flawed they're they're real people is what maya seems to be trying to kind of bring into these stories constantly which is almost exactly the opposite of what Roddenberry wanted you know he wanted a world where these people had evolved past a lot of this stuff he wanted a world where they were you know very not robotic in a sense but they they were above it all they were above these kind of worries or dilemmas or emotions in a way <laughs> you know and and that's and that's one of the reasons why which is odd because the 60s series wasn't like that at all there was so much passion in those in those stories you know but it was only really when he got to the next generation and to the motion picture that he seemed to see that world in that very sort of distant way and it was only when they started to humanize a lot of these characters that yeah it all changed maybe one of the things that's just from 
in terms of the way that we look at this film is I sort of wonder whether there's a connection between sort of trying to make these people more real. And, and I think there is, in a sense, because it all ties into Nick Meyer's approach to doing these stories and these kind of physical objects which ground the film in our real world. You know, these books, they, they partly, I mean, he describes them in the script as 20th century volumes. You know, they're kind of, they're not just books, they're not futuristic books, in a sense, with like holographic covers or whatever. They're, they're like hardback books that you'd get in a library or a second-hand bookshop, basically. And, and they, they really kind of ground the film in that world, as do, you know, the spectacles that he has Kirk wearing. And he sort of has to kind of work out a reason. You know, McCoy says, oh, normally I'd prescribe whatever it is, ret- retinox or retinax or something, but you're allergic to it. So there has, has to be an excuse for him to give Kirk another one of these old physical objects, which kind of ground him in reality in a sense because they're not it's not a he's not wearing a visor he's not wearing some kind of sci-fi thing he's just wearing an old pair of spectacles so it brings around this this kind of feeling of reality in a sense and just moving back to you mentioned khan's bookshelf some of the other books on that bookshelf nick meyer in his book he he says when he was working on the script he says i tried to imagine what cargo kirk had allowed khan to take with him into exile and i concluded that books must have been among the resources permitting him so what books from the library of the enterprise would khan have chosen that's quite interesting itself because I'd always assumed that these were books that he had on the Botany Bay and that he'd taken with him but Nick Meyer was assuming I mean he wrote it so I suppose it's up to him that these are books that actually Kirk has sort of gifted him in a sense and that they were all on the Enterprise anyway which which would be surprising given that as I said in Court Martial we saw Kirk was sort of disdainful of of these hardback books so but anyway so that's, that's a kind of a side issue but so the the why did he choose those books? I mean, the reason Nick Meyer said, he said, somewhat heavy-handedly, I'd selected narratives of Fallen Angels, Paradise Lost, King Lear and Moby Dick. How many times must Khan, with his superior intellect, have read and reread these tormented tales? And how much time did he have to absorb and identify with their doomed protagonists? So I suppose that gives us a clue as to what some of the the books that he's chosen are representing in that scene and, and on that bookshelf. I think the key one, you know, other than the, the, the two books that we talked about, really, is Paradise Lost. And in some ways, the, there's also Dante's Inferno, which covers similar territory in terms of looking at hell and Satan and uh, and so on. Uh, and, and also, of course, he has a, a copy of the Bible, which is thematically very important in terms of the Genesis device and the book of Genesis and the creation of new worlds and so on. But I think really... For Khan to sort of understand him, Paradise Lost is is quite a key text, and it's one that actually comes up in uh, in Space Seed in the original episode that he appears in. At the very end, he asks Kirk, um, "Have you read Milton?" And he says yes, and th- and then Khan basically says, "Well, then you'll you'll understand." And this is when he's he's uh, sort of accepting banishment to this planet, which is is going to be a difficult place to live on, but but not impossible. And Kirk then explains to Scotty, who hasn't read Milton, what he's referring to is this line, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So basically, although Khan's going to be banished to this planet, which is, you know, somewhat inhospitable, he's going to be his own boss. He's going to be in charge. He's going to be the leader not a follower. In a sense, Kirk serving in heaven is literally what Captain Kirk does. You know, he serves in Starfleet in the heavens, uh, which is space. Um, and there's definitely this sense of, of Khan as this character who's been taken from the heavens down down to Earth, down to this hellish planet, as it turns out to be in this film. Well, at, the, at this point, I will um, direct people to a, a, a really good set of tie-in books written by Greg Cox, called the well they're, they're, they're part of called the eugenics wars but there's there's two books they're both quite different but they both cover the same kind of ground and one is called to reign in hell and it does tell the story of what happens to khan after space seed and before the wrath of khan and it fills in those gaps and it is it isn't it isn't canon it's a time book but it's really well done and it 
it does present this idea of how what starts off as a, almost in some respects a new start for Khan in terms of trying to, to you know, create a world it, it, that he would have wanted to create with Earth becomes a literal hell by the time that, you know, the, the uh, cosmic accident takes place, which causes SETI Alpha 5 to, um, to become hell. You know, by, so by the, you know, by the time um, Terrell and Chekhov get down there, it's just this storm-filled, you know, wreck of a of a place. Really, it is it is literally a hell, and I, and it's 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 interesting how you know it, it, in creating this this backstory effectively of how Khan lost his wife and all these different things, how he he, he ended up having maybe in an odd way a second chance, but the heavens conspired against him. You know, in many in many respects, for him to lose everything. For him to become this, yeah, he, you know, he, he wasn't because I don't, he wasn't mad in Space Seed. He was driven. He was, you know, incredibly egotistical, and he believed he was destined for, you know, for for, for humanity effectively to become, you know, he was better. He was he was their betters. By the time we get to the Wrath of Khan, he's gone mad. You know, he he has truly lost his mind. He is just completely consumed with this this idea that he has been wronged, and that the hell. He, he's going back into heaven in order to destroy the angel that's left, you know, as this as this fallen angel. He sees himself in very theatrical, literal terms. I think, you know, the amount the amount of theatrical lines he uses, you know, quotations from uh, various different things. He has that real th- theatre to him in the, in the very idea of what he's been driven to do, and I think that that's one of the reasons he's such such a great character because. He so easily could be lampooned <laughs> in a way, but he, he he's always terrifying at the same time, and that that's the sign I think of a really good depiction of madness. Paradise Lost is a is a good reference point here because um, maybe we should just say for if people are interested in the the sort of background, Paradise Lost was a, an epic poem written by John Milton, uh, first published sixteen sixty seven, and it basically tells the story of it, it begins in hell with Satan having been banished from heaven, having. Uh, led this kind of uprising against God and against uh, God has created his son, the Messiah in heaven. And Satan has has led this uprising against them and been banished down to hell with the other fallen angels. Uh, And the the story is basically him getting his revenge on God by he can't defeat God, but he can destroy man. Basically, God has created earth, you know, obviously, as as in the book of Genesis and the Bible and so so on. Is it, you know, it's the same story. But so so the story, but it's a revenge story. I suppose that's the way of looking at it is it's, it's not told just from the perspective of the good people with Satan as the antagonist. It's actually told in large part from Satan's perspective, in a sense, which was why um, William Blake famously said of Milton that he was of the devil's party without knowing it, that basically he'd unintentionally sided with the villain because, you know, they always say the villain has the best lines or whatever. And, And it's true, I think, when you read the poem, the devil makes the most persuasive arguments. The arguments that God makes always seem rather kind of, I don't know, they, they're sort of circular and they and they kind of tie themselves in knots a bit. And although the, the stated aim of the poem is um, to justify the ways of God to man, actually, for many readers, it kind of ends up doing the opposite. And you, you sympathise much more with Satan in some ways than you do with this rather remote character of God. Uh, and certainly you, you kind of sympathise with his plight and, and his situation and, and why he has this 
desire to to avenge himself in a sense and i suppose the same is true of, of khan to some extent you can kind of you know you understand very much where he's coming from yes he's deranged yes he's mad yes he's the villain and so on but but he's also he has aspects that are admirable he's quite you know he's sort of charming in his own way he's he's very clever he's very charismatic villain partly because of Ricardo Montalban's amazing performance. But he's a, a worthy adversary for Captain Kirk, I suppose. And, and in the initial stages of the film, a more than worthy adversary for Kirk, because Kirk is really not at his best, and he has to kind of up his game to sort of, you know, stand a chance against Khan, in a sense. Interestingly, in Paradise Lost, Satan is described as, as combining infinite wrath with infinite despair, which is exactly, you know, a perfect description of Khan in a sense. You know, the film is called The Wrath of Khan and, and despair is a big part of what's brought him to that situation. You know, losing his wife, being banished in this hellish environment for 15 years. It's kind of understandable why, why he would sort of be brought to this situation. I guess the other way of looking at Satan and maybe tying together some of these characters is like Ahab, like Khan. He's what we might call a Promethean character. He's this kind of overreacher. Satan and his followers uh, in Paradise Lost are described as being the banished crew. They've been exiled from heaven in the same way as Khan and his followers have been exiled from Earth initially uh, in the eugenics wars and then subsequently exiled a second time by Captain Kirk. And, and, and the reason they were exiled the first time around is, is because of this sort of idea of overreaching. You know, they want to put themselves above normal human beings. And we see this kind of playing out again in Deep Space Nine in the discussion of the, of the augments there um, or the genetically enhanced people there that there's this idea they they are both better than normal human beings, which obviously is the case with the fallen angels. You know, they're, they, these are they're superior uh, beings. They're they're angels, but they're they want they want more than they they don't know their place. You know, and, and basically Satan's big crime is that he won't fall into place and recognise the superiority of God and of God's Son and kind of bow down to them in a sense. And and Khan, in the same way, is kind of overreaching. He he wants to to be more. He wants more power. He wants more respect. He wants to kind of step above his his station um and ahab in a sense i think part of what's so mad and so morally appalling about his quest is partly he will give up anything including you know the lives of his crew etc in terms of in in pursuit of his goal of revenge but it's also that there's something kind of wrong about it you know the whale almost represents nature in a sense and he's trying to overreach what what is acceptable for human beings and to kind of you know have a degree of control that we don't really we shouldn't have in a sense over the natural world to think that he can defeat this force of nature that's kind of represented by the whale so there's this kind of connection there with these characters who are all sort of seeing themselves as as more than they're supposed to be as trying to sort of overreach their position in a sense and and kind of um and being punished for it in a sense and punishment i think is is key to the uh, the last book the last major book on his shelf, apart from the Bible, which is King Lear, which is the uh, Shakespeare text from um, 1605 or 1606, which was the, the first performance. And it, it's it's not as... I'd, I'd say that Lear isn't isn't as direct in terms of some of the, the plot themes or some of the ideas as some of the other books. But I think what it does is it, it it's all about madness. It's all about this, this tra- self-stylized tragic figure this king who divides his his, um, his kingdom between his three daughters, and you know as, he, as he's growing older, and that the the one who loves him the most will get the largest share, and he starts to realise that he makes he makes a terrible mistake when his daughters turn out to you know be be you know um, filled with uh, betrayal, 
And it's that whole idea of, in the end, Lear is punished by his own motivations. And that's what triggers him just descending into this complete pit of madness. And I think that the idea is that Khan is obsessed with this idea of bringing, if anything, bringing upon his own downfall, I think. Just for for the sheer fact he has to, you know, he has to do this. He has to find a way off this planet. He has to avenge. I will avenge myself upon you, as he says. You know, he, he he's he's driven purely by this now, because you know Kirk is, has the temerity enough to you know leave him on this planet and then not help, not not come back and try and save him when you know, like I say, a cosmic event, something in the heavens, dooms everybody on this planet, kills his wife. He's he's angry at the injustice of it, even though he brought it all on himself, effectively, you know, by, by trying to take over the Enterprise in Space Seed. You know, he's completely pathologically unaware, unable to see his own role in it, in, in a way, his own responsibility. And I think that's what's really interesting about him as a character. And it's, again, another allusion to a very doomed, tragic figure. Definitely. There's this sense, I suppose, in Lear of... of the relationship between re- revenge leading to madness, I suppose, which is, is part of what we see with Khan. I found it, of all the books, the, the least sort of obvious. And it's, I, I was sort of rereading Lear this week, trying to, you, you know, think, what is it about this? You know, why is it this book of all of them that... Because uh, I think he also has a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare on his shelf, but this one is the one that's sort of pulled out. I don't know if partly as well it's to do with Khan being an older man at this stage so he's a kind of I mean I don't know how old Ricardo Montalban was but that whole discussion about his chest was kind of in relation to the fact that he he seemed to be uh, in surprisingly good physical shape for someone of of his age if you see I think I mean. he was about 60 I think right, he was about okay, 60 or okay, something fine. like that yeah and I mean one of the things you know famously about actors playing King Lear is that it's a very challenging part because he's supposed to be this very old man and then right at the end of this extremely long and exhausting and emotionally draining play he has to carry uh, a young woman across the stage he has to carry Cordelia across the stage and this was always a kind of challenge that you know if you cast someone too elderly and frail to play King Lear they actually wouldn't physically be up to the job so you had to kind of factor that in in a sense Ricardo Montalban would have been fine interestingly in in Maya's book he said that when he was when they were filming the the scene you know where he um uses the seti eels on Chekhov and 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 so on watching it he said to Montalban afterwards you know you you really ought to play Lear that was his that was his main kind of takeaway from that scene in a sense uh and he sort of comes back to it later in that chapter and says what a tragedy it is that he that he never did because he thought he would have been perfect for that part so there's definitely a sort of connection there, both for, you know, for, for Maya sees this connection between between Khan and Lear, and also maybe, as you say, those those kind of themes. The other thing that it, that struck me about Lear is that the character of Edmund, who's the, the sort of the bastard son, who, who is a really nasty piece of work, who's kind of evil, who's a kind of a ne'er-do-well, a troublemaker, in some ways, to me, there's a slight connection there, maybe, with the idea of the augments, these kind of... It, you know they're not quite they're not quite human in a sense they're not quite like the normal rule abiding I, I suppose the idea of being a bastard you know being outside of the kind of rules and the structures of legitimacy and inheritance and all those sort of things um and that maybe there's a kind of a sort of a connection there with with these you know these characters who are uh you know seeking to take over and he's very much scheming against his legitimate brother trying to sort of take power for himself and he's also very interested there's this kind of theme in Lear about fate and about the stars and about the role of you know these things and the and the role of the fates and kind of 
human beings as these rather small there's this line as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods they kill us for their sport you know as these rather uh, small victims of circumstance i was just thinking it's interesting the way you described the you know the kind of planetary catastrophe that plunges khan into his situation you know he's literally kind of the stars conspiring against him and his his sort of fate conspiring against him in a sense yeah and i I think that's absolutely one of the things he's he's so frustrated about because of something outside of his control and he needs someone to blame he needs something to blame you know in that everything he he planned has completely not worked out and i think by by the time we get to the wrath of khan he's just lost any perspective whatsoever and i think he, he making him into that kind of very tragic Shakespearean character, you know, with, with but then with, with all of these different literary illusions, it just makes him, you know, such a, such a powerful villain in a sense, because having the, the cultural and the literary, you know, not just, not just, not just, you know, metaphorical illusions, but literal ones staring you in the face on a bookshelf, you know, quite visual kind of things to say, this is, this, these are the stories. These are the very human literary stories that we are taking this, this story from, is it, it just? I think it just enhances the whole drama, and it and it makes Star Trek. It gives it more gravitas. I think it gives it more a more of a sense of grounding and more of a sense of being this quite mythological story in many respects. And and I think that's one of the reasons. As I said before, this is the point Star Trek becomes, in many respects, the Star Trek that a lot of people love, even more so because it be, becomes. It becomes, in a way, the human adventure, even more so, because it is a very human story. And it becomes a part of culture itself. I mean, not that it wasn't before, but it's also, maybe it's also partly in a way, a way of sort of staking a claim to a kind of cultural meaning in its own right by invoking. I mean, writers have always done this sort of invoking the previous greats uh, as a way of sort of associating themselves with it in a sense, you know, and by drawing on these themes and drawing on these connections, it's kind of um, bolstering its own kind of cultural capital in a sense. Mm. I think I think that's one of the great things it does. I'm curious with that in mind. Obviously, we know that Nick Meyer is after a, a long gap, uh, having been involved with, as you said, three of your favourite, three of my favourite Star Trek films as well, is working on Star Trek Discovery. Now, I don't know if we, how much we know about, you know, so what his role is or, or how much he's writing or whatever, but it makes me wonder what will his influence be on that series and will, will he be bringing his kind of literary interests to bear in some way on Discovery? Uh, we know, for example, that he loves the work of H.G. Wells because he, he made a film uh, famously about H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper. You know, will he be giving us a sort of island of Dr. Moreau in space story? Or, you, you know, what, what what would you like to see if you were going to... What would your hopes for Discovery be that, that Nick Meyer might bring from the kind of literary table? Well, I, th- I think I'd quite like to see him sort of playing a similar sandbox that he did on the in The Undiscovered Country, actually. Because I think one of the... From what we know about Discovery, without... And spoilers, if in case anyone does want to know nothing, and I'm not even sure this is a spoiler. <laughs> it's, it's from what I've heard. It's going to heavily feature a kind of you know Klingon Federation sort of war scenario, a bit of a Cold War scenario before the events of the original series, and we're going to be playing a lot with with elements of politics, you know. So I'd quite like to see him go back to some of that, and I'd quite like him to see, you know, obviously, and what I'm sure we'll talk about the undiscovered country another time. But Hamlet is a very big force in that that film. I'd like to see him tap more Shakespearean stories, more of these kind of literary literary illusions, playing in that in whatever political kind of you know metaphor that they're they're going to invoke. And I imagine Discovery will try and invoke something fairly current in its own way, 
as as every Star Trek series does. I kind of like to, to see, see him do that because I think, much as I think The Wrath of Khan is his greatest work in Star Trek, I think The Undiscovered Country is, in some respects, even more grounded in the literary, mm. in, in a way. Mm. So I'd quite like to see that. I'm sort of hoping for, um, this is my my hope for Discovery, and it's partly just sort of guessing, really, between the lines, because the, the, this sort of slightly controversial decision that they've made the captain not the main character, and the, and the main character is, is the first officer... I'm sort of hoping for a kind of mutiny story. And obviously, you know, looking at Meyer's uh, literary uh, interest in, in nautical literature, obviously there's a kind of whole uh, sort of liter- literature around the idea of mutinies there. Or, you know, maybe taking that another way, it could be, you know, you talk about Shakespeare, it could be like Julius Caesar in space. I just, I, I'm sort of mm. hoping that Jason Isaacs is not there to be kind of in the background and in the kind of what, what was originally the Jed Bartlett role in the West Wing until they realised they had to kind of bring him <laughs> into being a main character. Uh, but that there's kind of a plot there. And, and, you know, I'm not really expecting Jason Isaacs to make it through to the final episode, whether that's through, you know, something tragic happens to him or I'd be quite interesting to see a story where there's there's a bit more sort of conflict within, you know, within the crew of a starship or something you know, so so maybe we could have Julius Caesar in space, <laughs> something like that. Lines from that'd the be amazing. Yeah. Surely you don't cast. Surely you don't cast Jason Jason Isaacs if you know if you're going to have a good guy. Surely, I, I mean, know, if, if you're going to cast anyone to play a duplicitous captain, yeah. who is a bit evil, it's yeah. Jason Isaacs. So Definitely. let's hope so. Definitely, fingers I hope crossed. So. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one final question that we all seem to ask on these episodes, so I suppose I'd better uh, pose it to you, which is... So we've been talking about the Wrath of Khan. What do you reckon? Any good? Uh, yeah, it's all right, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I, can, I can live with it. I can, I can yeah. stomach it. No, <laughs> it, be it is, it is my, <laughs> my favourite Star Trek film, and I don't just say that for the purposes of this episode. It is. It is the one I think I've probably watched the most. It is just... I w- I've, I've I've gone on record on other podcasts. I think of saying this. It is not just for me the best Star Trek film. I think it's one of the best science fiction films ever made. So you know that's as good as I can say, really. Absolutely. No, I agree. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think it, it it is a great Star Trek film, but it does it does sort of go beyond that. It, 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 I suppose partly because it it feels it, it's also indebted. I mean, we've been talking about literary references. I think it's also indebted to other sci-fi films. Like if you think of, say, Alien, actually, a, a film like that has quite an influence on it in terms of the kind of uh, partly the sort of body horror stuff with the SETI, eel, uh, SETI alpha eels and so on. And also, you, you know, there are some quite scary, quite horrific, quite nasty stuff. And actually, it was interesting reading Meyer's book. He said, basically, if he could have afforded the budget... He would have. I don't quite understand why this would have cost a lot of money, but but basically, he said he really wanted the Enterprise to look like that that ship in the original Alien film. Uh, you know, quite kind of more sort of run down, I suppose, more sort of gritty. And and he does achieve that to a, a great extent. He makes it feel more grounded. He makes it feel more gritty. He makes it feel less less like this sort of perfect, pristine, beautiful environment in a sense. But um, I really think he you know he is staking a claim not just to to writing a good Star Trek movie, but to writing a great science fiction and directing a great science fiction film as well. Yeah, which is ironic because he he didn't really want to make a science fiction film. No, no. <laughs> That's the irony. I know. And he ended it's up making one of the best. He did, yeah. 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 Well, well uh, that brings us to the end of this episode of Primitive Culture. But uh, nosing through Khan's library isn't all we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what else has been happening on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Melodic Treks. 
I think one of the things though that still attracts me to his music is that whole dissonance um having something be not quite perfect two notes that seem like they should be on but one of them's just slightly off not enough to be flat or sharp but just enough to make you notice and he uses that a lot in his music literary tracks it's not just about q do you remember Trelane from the original series? The episode The Squire of Gothos? <laughs> he was played by William J. Campbell, aka Koloth. But Trelane's character in the original series is very similar to what we got later with Q, and he may have been some of the inspiration behind the Q character. Saturday morning trek. The line that I thought was really interesting, twist me Wittershins, mean a direction contrary to the sun's course, considered as unlucky, counterclockwise. So instead of saying, twist me counterclockwise, they said, twist me Wittershins. So they use the word Wittershins? Wittershins. That's yeah. a word? Yes. That's and a apparently real world. A, a child in 1973 should have known, apparently. Um, wow. That is... I missed that, and I don't ever want to hear the word. It's a terrible word. It's a terrible word. The Ready Room. Well, Larry, you know in this case, in the writer's room, the real question on Discovery right now is to hoof or not to hoof. Oh, no. Well, my thing is to to three-finger or to five-finger. So, um, <laughs> <Right. yeah. laughs> What will they do with the Tellerite hands? <laughs> I mean, the Klingon foreheads got an example, uh, uh, an answer. When are we ever going to have a reason for what happened to the five-fingered Tellarites versus the, yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, 
if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.